Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Fit podcast, where it's my job to help you apply knowledge that is both scientific and practical into your own life to maximize your physique development and your overall body, as well as your mind. The combination of these two things is what makes you Beyond Fit. All right. Hi, guys. This is Jake Parker. Welcome back to the Beyond Fit podcast. My guest today was last on episode 152, which was called Making Truth Your Target. We got into quite a few different philosophical conversations, and I enjoyed having them on a lot. One of the favorite conversation themes, conversation types I like having on the show is getting someone who is fitness oriented, who works in fitness, but also has a lot of just broader views on living the good life, so to speak. And Pat definitely fits that target. Pat is someone who is a frequent guest on Mike Matthews podcast, who is one of my uh, biggest role models in the fitness game. And he also has his own podcast, the Pat Flynn show. He's an author. He's a philosopher coach. He's a generalist. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today is generalism. I've been uh, checking out your book, Pat, how to be better at almost everything. And so I have a couple questions from there. Uh, But just in case anybody missed you on the last episode of the show, why don't you give a little bit of an introduction yourself? Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here again, Jake. Thanks for inviting me on. And um, speaking of Mike Matthews, I was just on his podcast. We went for like, I don't know, two and a half, maybe three hours, just, wow. just all, just all, just all over creation in terms of the conversation. I mean, we, we, we solved all the world's issues. It was amazing. So that should be out soon. So is this um, is separate from the one where you had uh, your other friend on. I'm forgetting. Who this is, yeah, this isn't, this is a new wow. one. So this will be upcoming. Um, but yeah, briefly, um, you're, you're right. I, I have a lot to say about fitness. I've, um, when I was going to college, uh, I should say my, my formal background is not fitness. It is, it's philosophy and economics specifically. So that's where I do like most of my mm-hmm. focus and writing and research. Yeah, but you got your master's in philosophy and you got your yeah. undergrad degree in economics. Is that correct? That's, yeah, yeah. Finance and econ for undergrad. Right. But when I was going to college, um, I was really, um, interested in and competitive in Taekwondo martial arts. And, um, I, I grew up, you know, pretty overweight and unathletic. Um, so it, martial arts in high school sort of introduced me to physical culture and, and, like most of the things I get interested in, I, I become mildly to um, obnoxiously obsessed with them, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Taekwondo, my Taekwondo coach led me to kettlebells. And um, so I, I fell in love with that as just a general sort of fitness instrument, training instrument. Still did lots of other stuff and still do with barbells and body weight, but kettlebells were just very efficient for what I was looking for. And uh, I began just as a way to pay the bills in college, just training people, right? As, as you know, dudes who get into fitness often do. And uh, yeah, I had a blog at the time and started writing about it and, and just sharing some of my, my own training and stuff I was doing with clients. And you know, one thing led to another and now I've got like four or five fitness books out and just kind of been doing that ever since. So yeah, yeah that's, the, that's the abbreviated story. One of, the, uh, one of the other things I came across recently in your podcast is you talked about the fact that growing up, you were very out of shape. Your family had very unhealthy eating habits and stuff like that. And that made me resonate with you in the sense that I I think that there's generally a lot of times in the fitness space, there's 
a lot of times these two types of people on one hand, you have people like you or I who struggled for a long time to figure out fitness. And then a lot of times on the other hand, it's just people who always excelled in sports and lifting and stuff like that growing up and just stayed with that passion their whole life. So I think it's interesting that you kind of came from the opposite end where it was a struggle for a long time. And then I remember you uh, talking about an anecdote with your, your friends in middle school, kind of being rude and crash, like middle school boys will be poking fun at you. And that's yeah, yeah, we, 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 we can get the details. We had the man boob contest. Yeah. And I won. And I won. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was, that was a pivotal moment for me. I'm like, I <laughs> like, I haven't won many things in my life and this is the one thing I don't want to win like ever mm-hmm. again. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what was that like, as far as you, you said you went on this, basically this journey to become fit, to learn about fitness. And you said the first thing you did was you didn't know much, but you went and you ate an orange because you were like, okay, fruit's healthy. I'm going to eat fruit. So what was that learning process like from going from someone who you, like you said, you had a family that always had junk food at the ready. You were always overweight growing up. And so how did you start to make this transition as a, as a young boy? Yeah, that's a good question. And the answer is like most people confusedly, right? Mm-hmm. So I just, I just had that, that pivotal moment when I was just, you know, frankly, just so ashamed and realized I, I need to do something about this. And the only thing that I knew, like really knew was like, okay, I think fruit's healthy. So the first thing I'm going to eat today is, is going to be a piece of fruit, right? After I realized I need to get, get my, myself in order. And then, you know, uh, like most people, it's just, it's just information overload when it comes to fitness. And uh, my mom, uh, like many of my family members was sort of a, a cereal dieter, right? One fad diet after the next. Uh, but we always, we had a basement full of just dieting books, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember in high school, just going down there and just, and just, just reading them, like reading as much as, as, as I could about all this stuff. And again, it's not, it, it, you know, it, it's hard to, to kind of separate, you know, uh, the good stuff from the bad stuff as people, I'm sure, you know, people who listen to your podcast, that's why they come to you, right? To help mm-hmm. them sort through the good and bad. So I was very confused, right? Like mom, my mom's got a, she's got sort of the Atkins diet book over here and then the Mediterranean diet book over there. So you can imagine, like literally you could imagine what a fad dieters book collection looked like, right? But it got me thinking, right? That, the, okay, there, there seems to be some, you know, principles here that are shared uh, that that tend to lead to success. And around this time also, um, I knew I needed to start doing some more physical activity because I was quite sedentary growing up. I mean, my my idea of exercising was pretty much sitting and resting and playing video games for most of my life, right? So um, now, now I didn't want to go to the weight room, right? Because a lot of my friends were in the weight room and I knew they would just give me nothing but grief at the time, right? So like I can sympathize with people who starting out might be a little intimidated by the weight room because I, I was too, right? Or if I knew I went there, it just it would just be annoying, right? Because mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was a Taekwondo place not far from my, uh, from my high school and me and my buddy just kind of popped in there on a, on a whim one day and, uh, I fell in love with it. He never came back, but, but, um, I begged the instructor at the time to just like, cause I didn't have any money, right. My parents weren't going to spot me for it. So I'm like, look, let me clean toilets. Let me just do something. I, I really want this. I really want to train here. So he saw that I was serious and, and that was a deal, right? So I started kind of working for him. And he, as the coach and the mentor, was the guy who helped me sort of separate the good from the bad, right? Because he was a man who, who had many years of, of experience and, and training and study and nutrition and physical culture. So he helped me just and, – and here I was very fortunate, right, of the value of having a good coach early on mm-hmm. who could help me uh, get things straight, right? So uh, now getting things straight sort of in your mind is different from being able to implement them, right? right. A lot of people kind of know what to do, but they have a hard time doing it. And that's where having a really good coach helps as well, right? So I had somebody I looked up to. I had somebody who was, I had somebody who was hard on me, 
uh, because he cared. Uh, he, he held me to a, a higher standard. I didn't want to disappoint him. So I had a lot of skin in the game. And so, you know, towards the end of high school, I went through a pretty dramatic transformation uh, because of this, mostly because of this coach, right? In terms of, in terms of education and implementation. I mean, I dropped a ton of weight. I started looking pretty muscular, started getting pretty strong, performing pretty well. So by the time I was in college, you know, I was, I was really uh, like feeling quite athletic for the first time in my life and competing in Taekwondo. And once I got into college, it was more a matter of just uh, refining and just exploring new options and just trying to find new ways to improve what uh, I had, had already begun uh, gaining momentum on. But um, yeah, if I'm going to credit any one particular thing, it was ha- fortunately finding a mentor early on um, to help me both on the on on you know the matter of what I needed to do, but also the manner of how to get it done. Yeah, it's so important because I mean I think that above all, it's important that you found someone who was actually trustworthy and knew what they were talking about because so often we, especially as young men, we want to trust people that are our senior just because they're older, they're experienced, they must know. But a lot of things with, especially with health and nutrition and fitness are so counterintuitive that it's important that, like you said, they know why something is important and they know how to apply it. Because just because someone went and got their, you know, their PhD in exercise physiology, if they can't help you apply things in your day-to-day life, then it's not going to be as useful. I think uh, there's this quote that just popped up in my head that I really like from, from Derek Sivers, where he said, if more information was the answer, then we'd all be billionaires with perfect abs. So it's like you reading all those diet books. Okay. You had all this information, but how do you sift through it and really make it actionable is the most important part. Right. Yeah. There's differences between, you know, just having information and and having knowledge or or having wisdom. Right. So most of us do not live in an age or a circumstance where we lack information these days. In fact, most people, when it comes to fitness, complain about just the opposite. They complain about information overload. They don't know what to do with all the information, especially the conflicting information. So that's where you need filters. Right. And this is where like good mentors and authorities can 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 uh, can come in. And then it's just a matter of, well, how do you evaluate mentors and authorities, right? And that's a, that's a hard thing to do, right? I mean, in many areas of life, I mean, we, we, we constantly rely on authorities because we can't figure everything out ourselves, right? Um, and we, we often a lot rely on authorities and testimonies for very basic things. I mean, I think I was born on October 24th, 1989, but I have no personal memory of that. Mm-hmm. I just more or less trust my parents, right? <laughs> but but given given my relationship with the parents, given that I see that they've been habitually trustworthy and, and given that I see that they lack any motivations for lying about something like that, like I feel pretty confident that when and where I was born is is the fact of the matter, right? Um, mm-hmm. but, but it's funny when you think about like how little of the stuff that we presume, especially the stuff that we presume to know really well, um, we, we, we know is a sort of self-evident truth, right? We often rely on testimony and authority. So what's the point? Well, well, we do this all the time, right? We do it in, uh, in relation to scientific matters. We do it in relation to personal matters. So when it comes to fitness, the, I think a starting framework is to try and find people who meet certain criteria. One is that um, they, they do or they have practiced what they preach. That's not, that's not an infallible criteria, but it's always something that I look for, right? Um, now it's, again, it's, it's not perfect, right? Because if somebody is like a coach for an Olympian, I don't necessarily expect them to be an Olympian themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. It, especially if they're like 70 or 80 years old now, maybe they were at one time, but, but, but generally it does help, um, if people have, have kind of rolled up their sleeves and, and yeah, really, tried, 
yeah, walk the walk, try to master the thing that they're teaching others, mm -hmm. right? To some degree. Okay. Uh, I think another uh, criteria that is as important, if not more important, is are they able to produce results consistently and repeatedly in others, right? So that's that's a big one. Um, do they hit a criteria of, of reproducibility, right? Because it's one thing if somebody does something for themselves, but have they been able to replicate this and pass it on to others in a consistent way, right? Okay, so that's another thing I think is worth looking for. And then finally is something like a principle of consistency, right? Are they consistent with what they've been saying yet are they willing to evolve in light of new evidence? And so there's kind of a middle ground here that I look for people. Um, a consistent person to me is somebody who doesn't just like do a radical flip-flop every two weeks, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, oh, like, keto is the best diet in the world, yeah, exactly week one, right? High carbs is the best diet in the world, week two. That to me just seems like somebody who doesn't really have their stuff together, right? They, mm -hmm. don't, have, they don't have sound principles just following fads. However, there's also, I think, a bad type of consistency where somebody is just so locked into one way of thinking that they refuse to acknowledge any new evidence or arguments that might cause them to change or alter or refine their point of view. So I look for a sort of a consistency, but I think if you look through a person's life, because none of us are infallible, generally speaking, right, that you should, you should see refinements in somebody's thought process, right? A general consistency, but but refinements and, and evolution and stuff like that. So I think that's a starting framework. I don't think it's a perfect one, but I think it's a starting framework as a sort of filter that people could use to try and help find better, maybe not perfect, but better, more reliable authorities, at least in when it comes to like fitness and nutrition. Yeah, I heard this really good anecdote one time on, a, I was listening to Joe Rogan and John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods was on there. And mm -hmm. he made this comparison, he said, uh, your ideas should be kind of like your clothes, or your outfits, like just because you're wearing certain outfits at the time and certain clothes that fit you because they're a part of the style. You know, you had the, the 90s fashion, the early 2000s fashion, just because that fit you at the time doesn't mean it's not malleable and it might not change in the future. But this is what I believe in now. But I'm always willing to change as as the world changes as I learn new things. So knowing that yes, I, I, I am to some extent committed to this, I'm representing this. But it doesn't mean that I can't just change outfits and change my fashion style if new information comes along. And I really like that. And something that came to mind when you were talking there is I really, really try to value and sometimes it's difficult, especially in today's world, but simplicity and first principles thinking. And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently on Elon Musk and how he's such a, a first principles thinker where it's he, his, he has really hard, hard, excuse me, high arching and complex ideas but they're formed around very, very basic things. So for example, like Neuralink, okay, we have all this technology. Why don't we make it a part of ourselves? Or, okay, we, we need uh, another outlet for people to live and grow and thrive and build a community. Let's go to Mars. And these ideas seem so crazy, but the way he talks about them, and I think the reason he gets things done is just, you know, besides being uh, a 1% of the 1% genius is he, he thinks in first principles and he really is a simple person when it comes down to it. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, in, in philosophy, we talk a lot about principles, first principles. So a principle is that from which, you know, other things flow, right? Um, so you have, you have principles of logic, for example, you have like a law of non-contradiction, right? It's just sort of this bedrock thing that you can't coherently escape, right? To even try and deny it would be in, in some sense to assume it, right? So like a lot of like uh, uh, of what comes out of logical thinking uh, sort of flows from this first principle, right? Um, well, same thing, I think with fitness, right? There's some there's some principles, right? And this is this is sort of what I began to see as I was reading many different diet books, or at least looking at the successes people have. 
who follow many different diets, right? Because let's, let's be honest, like people do have success following pretty wildly different diets. We know people who follow keto and have been successful with that. We know people who followed higher carb approaches and have been successful with that. So are there like shared principles or commonalities among these, these, these diets that, that might help to explain why people have success on seemingly very different plants. I would argue there, there are, right? Like there's, there, there, and, and they're, they're actually probably more obvious than people realize. One, one big one is often we see that, that a lot of these diets just enact some form of caloric control, yeah. right? All else equal, a lot of these diets, whether it's keto or it's fasting or it's veganism or whatever, I'm not saying that none of these diets might um, have unique benefits irrespective of this, but they definitely, in, in most of the successful uh, if not all of the successful weight loss attempts all achieve this is a reduction in calories, right? Fasting takes out globs of calories. If you go keto, you're probably taking out big globs of calories, right? If, um, if you start to, if you go carnivore or whatever, right? You're just taking out often large amounts of uh, time that you spent eating or food groups or something like that. It all brings calories down. So that's a principle, right? That's a principle. Uh, other principles that tend to be shared among these, these types of diets are often increased in, in protein. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And it seems like, uh, again, in, in the research, uh, when you push protein up, good things tend to happen for body composition. That's another consistent thing. Another principle would be uh, getting rid of or significantly reducing hyper palatable foods, right? The foods that typically come along with the slogan, you can't just eat one of them, right? <laughs> right? Just like standard American diet type of stuff. And when you look at the success people have, these seem to be commonalities and principles. And then what you can do is you can see, okay, these are the principles of success. Great. So like, these are the things I need to achieve. Well, now we can talk about lifestyle and personal preference and talk about um, what might be the best way for you to enact those principles. And so this is great because now we have tons of flexibility in our approach and certain specific approaches might just make more sense for other people than other specific approaches. You know, Jake, I'm sure you have clients that some really love fasting or do well in fasting. Others really like more frequent feeding or something like that. And to, to that, I say, awesome. As long as you're helping getting these basic principles down and you understand why it's working mm -hmm. most fundamentally, then cool. We can take, we can take whatever approach is going to, you know, allow you to be consistent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the truism that always comes up for me in the podcast and in talking with other people in the space, talking with clients is 90% of the time when someone asks a question about what we'll just say for diet, you're probably going to say, it depends. Does fasting work? It depends. Should I go low carb? It depends. You know, should I, you know, because it's again, like you said, it's has so much to do with what's your preference. Well, do you like foods that are low, low in carb? Well, that's probably going to work better for you. Are you hungry for breakfast or thing in the morning? Then fasting is probably not going to work for you. I think that one of the things I, I, and I feel like I heard this somewhere, but I tend to just say it a lot of times to people that I think over 90% of the benefits, because you said that some diets, you know, you'll see benefits besides just the caloric control, which is true. But I think 90% of the benefits from a diet just come from you're controlling calories. And to some extent, you're eating high protein usually too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not oftentimes coming down to the fact that paleo is, is the cleanest and that's going to be good for you. Yes, to some extent, it's obviously better than eating junk foods or foods that are very low in, in nutrients. But the biggest, the big win is just going to be from controlling your calories in some way and mm -hmm. trying to get some higher protein foods in there. Right. And we can see why something like paleo and it's sort of original form before it became like, so commercialized that 
you know, you had like these paleo candy bars and stuff like that. Right. But in its original form, what the paleo kind of had people doing Well, it had you eating like a lot of protein, a lot of fibrous vegetables, like stuff that was pretty nutritionally dense, um, high on the satiety index and really help people bring their calories down. Right. Whereas like, yes, like you, you have those people who go out to prove a point, like I can lose weight eating McDonald's, but uh, that isn't the case for most people because a lot of that type of food is just so easy to overconsume, right? We, we all know that, right? We all know that. So uh, again, yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm just reiterating your point. Like these, mm. these, if you get clarity on the principles, a lot of uh, the other stuff can just pretty easily snap into place. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So one of the main questions I had as it relates to journalism, and I told Pat that I wanted to go a little bit into journalism in terms of just how we formulate our lives and our careers. And I think it's especially relevant to someone like me and someone who in my audience is, is similar to me in, in my mid-20s, still kind of figuring out career paths and what sort of choices and lifestyle habits I'm going to make. And so one of the interesting things is obviously when it comes to understanding diet, like you and I do here, and like we try to communicate to people, that's counterintuitive. And a lot of people don't understand diet in the way that we do. And they want to say what's healthy, what's not healthy. And they don't think from first principles. So as far as what turned you on to generalism, I'm curious kind of how you touched on your, your mentor in the, um, in the, do you say Taekwondo? That's right. Mm -hmm. In the Taekwondo. So how did you come across journalism in your life and why and how that would be useful for you when the typical approach would be specialization, which you, in your book, you talk a lot about how that's the antithesis of how to find success in today's world. So how did you get to this counterintuitive point of view and start to apply it in your life? Right. Yeah. And um, I'm sure we'll clarify this as, as we go along, but I think it's specialization per se isn't isn't the enemy so much as hyper specialization at the expense of, of generalism. Um, and we can talk about that as we move along. But yeah, so for me, like many um, of my ideas, I sort of stumbled upon it by by accident. Right. It wasn't something that I just sat down and just boom, there it is. Mm -hmm. Um so I was, you know, for 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 better or worse, uh, I was kind of reflecting upon in my mid twenties the the, um, I guess relative success that I have had had in my business so far, right? Uh, in specifically in the fitness industry, the books I had written in and all the programs I've sold and stuff like that, and um, I think if I remember rightly, I think like somebody, um, sent me an email one day and uh, he meant it as as a compliment, um it could have easily been read as an insult. I didn't read it as an insult, but he's like, Pat, I like your stuff uh, because you're not, you're not the strongest. <laughs> you're not the biggest or, or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it got, it got me thinking, cause like, that's absolutely true. Right. Like I'm not so, I'm not so deluded to think that I'm like the best in the world at any particular thing related to fitness. I'm definitely not the strongest dude. I'm definitely not the biggest dude. Definitely not the leanest, definitely not the fastest. Right. So, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, well, why is it then? Like, like, why is it that, that, um, I've, you know, gotten these book deals and I've been able to kind of build my business in the space when there's like person A who's like way stronger than me, person B who's like way more cut up than I am. And, and like, they're trying, right. They're out there trying to build a platform and get the word out. Right. And the more I thought about it, the, it, the more I realized, well, it's because I just have more skills than they do in general. Right. Even if they're better than me at any one particular thing, I have backgrounds in writing. I have backgrounds in philosophy. I've taken the time to study marketing and, and advertising and all this. And so it's, it's been those combination of skills, right? 
uh, rather than the hyper specialization of anyone, just trying to like be the best in the world at say, I don't know, kettlebells, but whatever that would even mean, I have no idea, right? And then stacking those skills, right? That allowed me to sort of stand out in a very noisy industry. So it was just kind of contemplating that uh, in relation to also studying people that I greatly admired and looked up to, other, other philosophers, other writers, other musicians, and realizing that they often had a very similar story. Sometimes people would think like this person is like a world-class hyper-specialist best in the world, but you know, not, not so much, right? Um, not so much. It, it actually is it, behind the scenes, what you realize is they tend to be very diverse in their skill sets and their talents. Uh, I think one example I give in the book, I don't know if uh, it's been a while since I read my own book, but maybe this made the, made the cut was, was Kiss, was Kiss in the band, something like that. I've like Gene got Simmons to that part yet, but. Uh, what it was, there's, there's definitely a musician in there, but I think of somebody like Gene Simmons or Kiss, right? Is like, everybody knows the band Kiss, but any like, person who's kind of like a formally trained musician I, I don't think i've ever heard anybody say in all seriousness that they think anybody in kiss is like the best at their instruments or like or even close right um but like gene simmons from kiss is somebody who really understands human psychology he really understands how to put on a show he really understands marketing right and he really understands how to make connections in the world and it was all of that right in combination with decent musicianship right uh, that that sort of allowed Kiss to become quote unquote the hottest band in the world, mm -hmm. as they would advertise themselves, right? Um, so yeah, th th those were kind of the seeds of it, and I, I, I spent about two years kind of really thinking hard about that. The culmination of which is is the book that you're talking about, the humbly named "How to Be Better at Almost Everything," and the general thesis is exactly that: is specialization is okay, uh, but it should be rotational and short term, right? Mm -hmm. That you should you should go into a certain area as much as you need to develop that skill as much as you need to put it in combination with other skills to form competitive and creative advantages um, as a generalist. So that way you aren't caught up in pretty much the, um, the, the guaranteed losing game of trying to compete with other hyper specialists. Yeah. And that's one of the, uh, one of the other counterintuitive parts of the book that I wanted to bring up. You talk about short-term specialization. And again, if you, if you boil it down, it makes a lot of sense, but if you look at how, generally people would live their lives or tell you to live your life short-term specialization is often not focused on we want to get better at 10 different things at once what jumped to mind to me when i was reading that part was you're probably familiar with uh i think they i think i'd call it like warren buffett's 525 rule you know what i'm talking about there basically he says write down the top 25 things that are most important to you and then circle the top five and I think it's an anecdote where he's telling a, a business partner or a mentee or something about this. And he goes, okay, what are you going to do with the other 20? And the other person goes, well, I'm going to give those a little bit of my time and give most of my time to the top five. And Warren Buffett goes, no, wrong. You're going to give all your time to this top five. And then once you've completed those, you can move on to other things. And that's so counterintuitive to us too, because I think it's part of just being ego-driven people. We want to believe that we can do everything, but really when the most advancements are made, it's when mm -hmm. we focus down and dial in on one thing. So yeah. what are some right. examples of that from your life? And did you, did you try and fail before, uh, find, before coming upon that where you were going? Yeah. A bunch of yeah. yeah. What, what is success? If not just like the progressive elimination of mistakes and errors. Right. right? Um, it's funny you brought up Buffett because I'm, I'm fairly certain I mentioned Charlie Munger in my book. And yeah, we talked about Munger last time also, I remember. Yeah, he's a guy who's pretty big on this generalism stuff. And if people are unfamiliar, he's considered like Buffett's right-hand man, right? Mm -hmm. um, so very successful guy in terms of like monetary assessment, right? Um, so yeah, so um, I mean, let's take a fitness analogy, right? And I think let's start with what we know and then kind of extend it into, into 
you know, see how far we can go with it. So, um, as as I'm sure you're familiar with Jake, but many of your gentle listeners probably are, right? It's it's typically a mistake to try and pursue too many fitness goals at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is just because we're just limited in time and energy, right? But also, like various goals can be conflicting in certain ways, yeah. right? Like if if I want to um, like cut down to like single digit body fat percentage, but at the same time, you know, try to uh, be very competitive in a powerlifting meet, like we're going to have a tension there, right? Or even more simple than that. Like if I want to bulk up and lean out simultaneously, really hard to do. And especially hard for do to do for somebody who's kind of been in the game a while. Like, so like put newbie gains aside, right? But for somebody who's been in the game a while, what you realize is that you're going to make better, more consistent progress. And you're going to be more efficient in your fitness pursuits. If you kind of have like one or two things you really focus on, like you kind of like go all in on that, you you surge, right? And then everything else you just sort of maintain. And by maintain, I mean, like, you don't even have to keep it where it's at, maybe even let it sink a little bit, let it drop a a little bit, because you know, you can eventually cycle back around and, and get to that. So what's the fitness analogy? Well, all right, I'm going to really focus on uh, putting on as much muscle as I can for the next six months. And I'll just try and maintain my body fat. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll gain some body fat, right? But I'm, I'm not going to try and gain too much, right? Uh, but I'll have a little bit of wiggle room because I know that that's just sometimes a necessary trade-off if I want to be kind of like really pushy about this goal. Then once I'm happy sort of with uh, the weight that I've accumulated, then I'll switch focus. Then I will try to lean out as much as I can while then maintaining as much muscle as possible. And is pretty much, you know, anybody experienced in, in that will tell you that is the better way to go than try and do both of those things simultaneously, right? Because on a basic level, one sort of demands a surplus, the other sort of demands a deficit. And so there's sort of a, a constant clashing and tension between that. So better to be a what I call a short-term or rotational specialist than trying to uh, kind of specialize in all things at once, right? Um, and I think once once you see that, you can kind of just extend it to to other areas of life, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, where do, where do you want to bring it? Because we could talk about many different things. Like, I have analogies we can use this for for music or or philosophy or, or business or, or you name it, right? But but even on kind of like the big level, there was times in my life, Jake, when like I was really focusing on the business, and like that just demands so much of you that that I know realistically, like I'm not going to be setting like my all time personal personal fitness goals here for a while. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep my fitness going, right? Because that's a really important part of my life. Like I'm not just going to give that up. Plus that would be kind of weird if I'm building a fitness business and I'm not actually doing fitness, right? So what I'll do is I'll just be like, Hey, I'm just going to, I'm going to chill in maintenance for a while, right? Just like keep my fitness at like general good levels. I'm not like fine. If I'm not setting like my all time best and everything, that's okay. Now that's psychologically hard for people. And that's sort of like an adult move you have to get used to making is that you just, you're just not going to be at your peak all the time. You're just not in, in different areas of life. Even as a hyper-specialist, you're not going to be at your peak all the time. So the sooner you come to accept that, I think the happier you'll be. Yeah. And pe- people sometimes freak out, right? It's like, oh no, like uh, I, cre- I crept up a percent body fat percentage and my life is worthless. And, yeah. and the big picture, pff, it, doesn't, it just doesn't matter, right? So you kind of like just put certain parts of your life, certain skills in maintenance mode, you give them because it's, it's always far easier to maintain something that it is to gain it in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a key principle I talk about in the book. And then you sort of divert your, your best energy and attention to those areas that you really want to aggressively develop and succeed at. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that'll get to a certain level. And then you can put that in maintenance mode and work on another project or another skill. And over time you start, 
building these skills through the short-term specialization. And as they become built up, they start to combine and interweave and can be used for forming other advantages, competitive and creative advantages in life. So that's the general structure. I know it's a little abstract, but happy to well, go into more detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To, to think of a more specific or concrete example, what thing, and I don't know how this is going to form into a question, but, but we'll find something here is sure. stuck out to me is so as far as your formal education and career, so you studied economics and finance in undergrad, you went on to philosophy in your graduate degree, and right. then you had your own business. So I'm curious, did you always want to have your own business? Was that always part of the idea? And did you ever feel this? I think a lot of people, and especially me, like I felt this way too, venturing into health and fitness arena when I studied finance in my undergrad. It's like, did you ever feel, oh, well, I you know, you got attached to these sunk costs. Well, I, I, am I supposed to do something in, in finance now? Am I supposed to do something in philosophy now? Because I have these degrees. Mm -hmm. And what was that whole process like of carving out your, um, your career and your education? Yeah. Well, okay. So that's, that's interesting. Um, so when I first, like originally, I, I always thought I would be either a writer or a musician, right. Um, when I was just, when I was just young, my two great loves writing music and, and also philosophy that came, that came a little bit later, but it came out of my love for just write uh, for reading really in general. Um, so in a general sense, I, I did always think I would kind of do my own thing. Right. Um, now, why did I go for econ and finance? Well, I was always interested in, not always, but since high school I was interested in economics and economic philosophy and stuff like that. So that, that intrigued me. Plus um, going to college originally for music, right? I had a, uh, I was originally planning to go for music, but then, you know, parents and social pressures were like, hey, you should get a real degree, right? Mm -hmm. And there was no way I was going to do undergrad in philosophy because uh, the school I went to, just the, the philosophy department is absolutely insane there, right? So it would, it's more of an indoctrination facility than it is about like making good philosophers, right? Um, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of like what I was doing in terms of my undergrad was something I was interested in, but also would, ha I, I thought at the time would have some type of practical utility as well. However, um, I never, I really never imagined myself kind of going into, into the corporate world. I think it, it was always kind of there, maybe in the back of my mind as some um, distant possibility. Um, but it was, uh, and part of, also part of the reason for that, Jake, is like I started my blog uh, my freshman year of college. And uh, by my senior year of college, I had already got my first book deal with Wiley, right? So um, even before I was kind of out of college and thinking like, I better start looking for a job, it seemed like a real possibility that I could do my own thing while I was even in school, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, yeah. that's, that's the background of it. I think, um, I think what's interesting there is how your story differs from the average person is I, like I said, I studied finance. I got a double major in finance and business administration, but yeah. the reason was more or less just because, okay, I'm going into college. I'm not sure what to study. You know, adults around me seem to think that business is a good idea. Okay. I'll do business. And then I graduate and I'm like, I don't really like this. What do I really like health and fitness? And that's kind of the, the short gist of my story. But I think it's, it's nice that you had some sort of direction. And I'm curious now, knowing what you know, do you feel like your formal education I guess if you had to do it over again, 
would you, especially in today's day and age with all of the education that's free online and stuff like that, all the things you can learn, all the books you can read, do you still think that a formal education in college is beneficial in the same way that it was 30 or 40 years ago when specialization was more so the norm and more so something that was beneficial to go after? Yeah. Um, all right. So that's a, that's a really important topic and I have a lot, I have a lot to say on it. Right. So like my, my knee jerk response is no. Right. Um, I think most people who are going to college are getting uh, horrifically ripped off and they're coming out with, uh, with very uh, low skill. Right. Uh, and in fact, I, I would even argue that they come out uh, in, in some, in some sense, even stupider than they went in amazingly. Uh, for the types of stuff that they go for. So I would say if you're going to go to college, right, and 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 dole out the very high tuition costs right now, uh, I would say like like physics, chemistry, biology, econ, something hard, right, practical, even finance, I think would make sense. But I mean, like most of my roommates, they went for like communications yeah. uh, or, you know, whatever right these like kind of like low easy degrees because they weren't really interested in being there yeah 100 yeah right to get good at something and so now now they're like you know up shit's creek proverbially with this worthless piece of paper and a ton of debt and very little like practical or specialized knowledge in anything so yeah i think if you're going to do undergrad like you better go for something uh that you can learn almost exclusively or at least best in a college environment, right? So something like the harder sciences or something like that, right? I love philosophy, obviously. Um, and I think a master's program in philosophy might make sense if it's at the right school. I, I, I don't think I could honestly recommend it as, as an undergrad, unless like you are absolutely certain like that you're going to be a, a professional philosopher or something like that and like why why anybody would want to do that i don't know like it pays praise like in terms of like a uh like a teaching career or something like that it's it's an exceedingly difficult thing it's exceedingly competitive and the pay isn't all that great so mm -hmm. and i'm uh, sure you would you would probably agree that it's almost another one of those truisms where success is a meta skill. So if you just figure out how to be good at solving things, problem solving, like you said, econ, physics, when you just figure out how to thrive, how to find truth, things like that, that's going to serve you well, no matter what you do. Right. And yeah, so I don't want to be too negative or too disparaging. Right. And so um, in terms of, yes. Yeah. In terms of like getting a, a philosophy degree, I think a master's, would be more appropriate for that mm -hmm. at, at the right school, right? So that's a, that's a big qualification. Um, now, I think philosophy is so enormously important, right? Because philosophy is really the only intellectual discipline that examines the assumptions of all the other disciplines, including the science and its own, yeah. right? Um, so if, if, you know, if you think that the good life consists in, in trying to figure out the truth of things, which you just said, Jake, then, then everybody should have an interest in philosophy, even if not a yeah. formal education, right? It's like how to live. What's more important than that? You know, that's everything. Right. I mean, so, so philosophy, I mean, that's, that's ethics, right? Ethics is the study of the good life, if there is such a thing. So that's one subdomain of philosophy. And then, you know, you have metaphysics and logic and, and epistemology and all these other ones. These are, these are big, important stuff um, that all the scientists sort of more or less assume, right? Mm -hmm. or, or have to assume to, to be, to be coherent. So 
I wish I, you know, I wish in an ideal world that people just had more of a, a formal, rigorous philosophical educa education in middle school and high school, right? Yeah. But that's, but that's not the case. So, so like you have to kind of deal with the messy situation that we're in. And my practical answer would be, yeah, read as much Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas and all those guys as you can, you know, between your chemistry classes or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that one of the other things is some, you know, the lay person might say, oh, you know, I'm not into philosophy. I don't care about that. But really, every choice you make has some semblance of philosophy to it. When you think about what sort of job you're going to take, is insurance more important to me? Is time off more important to me? Is pay more important to me? You're making a philosophical decision right there, right? With, with how you spend your time, with the people that you interact with. It, it is just such a integral part of life, whether you're paying close attention to it or not. Yeah, well, one of my uh, one of my old professors, um, he would always he would always remind us, and this always seemed true to me, is that um, you can't escape doing philosophy. You can only escape doing it well. Mm -hmm. Right. In the same sense, you can't escape having a philosophy. You can only escape realizing that you have a philosophy, and maybe escape realizing whether you have a good one or a bad one. Right. So you're committed to it, no matter what. I mean, it just comes with life. Right. We all have a worldview. We all have a way of looking at the world. We all have sort of our ways of making decisions types of things that we value our ethical judgments all of that so like this is just the this is just the ocean we swim in and then the question is are you going to be critically reflective about that and that's what philosophy is it's that critically reflective um you know systematic analysis of personal experience and then trying to set it in relationship of the whole so if you're not taking that critically reflective step you're still doing philosophy mm -hmm. without realizing it but without that critically reflective turn, you're probably just not doing it well. Mm -hmm. When I uh, when I think about college, I, I've told a lot of people and had conversations centered around, I just don't think I was mature enough at 18 to delve into and be interested in learning. Like that, 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 uh, that now seems like if someone was just like, hey, do you want to go learn some skill for four years? I'm like, that sounds amazing. But at 18, I was like, what? Not really. I want to go party. You know what right. I mean? And, but I think that, through the years, I developed personal responsibility and discipline. And I guess I just had it in my head, like a lot of people do when I was 18, 19, 20. Oh, you know, I'm going to go through this and I'm going to graduate and everything will be fine. You know, all the adults in my life seem fine. But the, the sad truth is a lot of people aren't fine. And unless you are intentional and really show some discipline and show some self-reflection, you're not going to be happy in the long term. And I'm glad that I came upon that lesson, I think, sooner than most people. But it was when I was about 22 graduating college, I was like, wow, what, what, what am I doing with my life? You know, I, I don't think that just having all these default choices is going to make me happy. And I think that I was very lucky to hear starting on podcasts, like Tim Ferriss was one that I got really hooked on when I was about 21. And mm -hmm. I enjoyed people like that because they talked about how to live better, how to be responsible, how to make good choices. But he was one of those people that was so honest about his downfalls. And he was like, I have bad days all the time. I struggle, but you have to continue to do your best. And I was like, oh, it's not just a snap and you're a successful adult one day. It's just you have to try day in and day out and you have to make pivots. And so I, I was glad that I learned that lesson and try to remind myself of that every day. Yeah, man, that's, that's there's a lot of wisdom in that. I remember just one of the things that kind of um, <clears throat> alerted to me to that sad reality was, um, you know, I was very interested to learn in college. And part of it was I was I was paying my own way. I didn't have for better or worse. Um, uh, definitely for worse in the grand scheme, my parents had like a pretty gruesome divorce right before I went to college and like it pretty much bankrupted us. Right. So like, I didn't have any funds. Right. Um, uh, so it helped having skin in the game. Cause I was like, well, damn it. If I'm going to be paid this much money, like I am never missing a single class. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and so far as I can remember, I never did. Right. 
Uh, but I was surprised, exceedingly surprised that even up through my senior year, how empty some of my classes were, right? However, there was always people who were there consistently and would be people who had, who had or were serving in the military. Mm. And they tended to be a bit older too. So it's like, to your point, right? It's like, there just seems to be a profound lack of maturity uh, for most, most people. And I think this is so obvious, it doesn't even really need to be argued who are just enrolling in college these days. What's the solution to that? Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily tied to age. I mean, there's there's plenty of very mature 18 year olds and younger. I think it's it's deeper failures of our educational system in, in general. Right? Again, far more than we could cover in this conversation. But it always did strike me as like, okay, it seems like the people who didn't go directly to college but went into military and sort of engaged with the hardness of life a bit really got discipline into them. Like they were the ones who had their ass in class every single time, right? And like those are the ones the professors enjoyed being around that they didn't have to you know, constantly nag to get their stuff in and whatnot, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that when uh, something I've touched on before too, that, that you were you were speaking of is the things that I think get missed in, in your education, just in your, your secondary education is you don't learn anything about philosophy, like you said, but you also don't learn anything about fitness and nutrition, eating well, you don't learn anything about personal finance. And I think those are some of the most useful skills that are just meta for everything else. Um, one thing I also wanted to make sure we got to that, that I, I wrote down a little bit ago here was you mentioned the word studying and something that goes through my head sometimes is I feel almost a sense of guilt in that I spend a lot of time learning on YouTube, reading articles, reading books, but sometimes it's hard to separate like what's, what's leisure, what's pleasure, what's entertainment and what's learning because sometimes they're so similar. And so for you or for even a young person who's trying to educate themselves, what would you tell them about learning things online, about how to spend your time, about how to discipline yourself? Because I another, another thing that I've said a lot is I feel like I've probably learned more after college than I did in college, just educating myself. Mm -hmm. But the, the biggest benefit that I missed from college is there was a deadline. There was somebody telling me, you have to have this done by this date. And so that, ma that made a sense of urgency where now learning on my own, I'm such a, in many ways, a type B person that I, I wish that I was doing more sometimes, but it's just that kind of flow of entertainment, guilt, is this learning, you know, what's useful, what should I spend my time on? Right. Yeah. So, so to learn, to grow in, in knowledge, you really have to go from a state of understanding less to understanding more. And that's different than just acquiring information as we talked about before. So the first thing I would recommend is that everybody gets a, a book. It's a book by a very good philosopher. His name's Mortimer J. Adler. It's called how to read a book, kind of a fun, a funny title, but it's a serious book. And it's a serious book about how to really engage with books, specifically books that are above your current intellectual pay grade how to wrestle with texts and how to really reach up, grab hold of this higher level of understanding and chin, chin your way over it, right? So that, that would be my first thing. Everybody just needs to start with how to read a book, right? Because that will, that will teach you the art and the skill of going from understanding less to understanding more by using resistance training in what you study and read, right? If you just read stuff that's already at your level, you're not going to grow. It's, it's like fitness, right? It's like, if you don't ever add weight to the bar, you're never going to get stronger. Like you need to engage with stuff that really challenges you where mm -hmm. like, it should be stuff that you shouldn't be able to speed read or skim, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it always surprised me when somebody says I'm reading five books a week. I'm like, really, what the hell are you reading, dude? Mm -hmm. Like, it must be really easy stuff because if you're reading like a really good book, you should spend a lot of time with it, right? Like going over things, underlining, highlighting, trying to like, you know, write out what the argument is really like it's a wrestling match when you study, 
For me, the best books are the ones that I have to have the dictionary close by. Sure. Yeah. What does this word mean? I've never heard this before. Yeah. Right. But, but like to me, like I know I'm, 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 I'm engaging with a good text when I'm really wrestling with it, when I'm really struggling with it, when I'm, when I'm revisiting things. Right. And it might take me a long time to get through it. I mean, there's, there's just some books that like I've wrestled with for years. Right. Um, That doesn't mean that like you never have easier reads and and sometimes you do just need information, right? Sometimes you do just need information, but if you want to really study and learn and grow, you gotta, you gotta read stuff that is above of where you currently are. That's, that's, that's key. Right. Um, and then you just got to make a habit of doing it. Right. You just need to carve out the time. And I do recommend reading, right? Like listening is fine. Audio books are fine. You can really definitely, agree. you can definitely be challenged by that. Um, but it doesn't replace engaging with, with text. Your and, attention is so more, so much more sporadic in listening in my experience. Right. And just, and just um, engaging with the text itself, you know, preferably with pencil in hand right so like it should like your books should look like you physically wrestled with them right like if you look at most of my books they'll have i just picked up a random one like big earmarks lots of marks in them that like the covers look like junk right because like you wrestle with them right you really do um so So that's that's uh, yeah i just have a quick question is there like two or three principles that you use whenever you read a book because for me some of the biggest keys are i like to use readwise i don't know if you're familiar with that but where you can uh highlight passages and then go over them again. And at the same time, I like to have, I'm a very much a kinesthetic person in some ways. So I like to have a pad and pen where I just write down whatever seems interesting to me, whatever seems relevant. I'll just be writing down stuff the entire time I'm reading to help with retention. What are a couple of- Yeah, I I would add just one other thing to that, which I think is really important is teach it. When you're you're done reading something, write about it. And you don't ever have to publish it, but um, you know, almost always when I'm when I'm trying to learn something, whenever I finish, I don't do I do this throughout, but you know, long before I finish the full book, even just a chapter, I will try and summarize and teach the chapter mm-hmm. because that will make very clear what you retained, what you understood, and what you didn't, and then it will show you where you need to go back and where you need to fill the gaps. So that would be the biggest thing, right? Make the argument right? As if you were writing the book and see if yeah. you can, can articulate it. Mm-hmm. There's a, an anecdote from Richard Feynman where he, he said that you should try to argue in front of either a small child or if you don't have a small child, a rubber duck. And he's like, you have to make it so simple that, that you know, someone with such a low understanding would, would understand it. And he says, that's how you really know that you have learned something or that you understand something. Right. Yeah, that's a fine exercise. I mean, there's just going to be, and Feynman would know this, he's a physicist, right? There's just going to be certain things that they're just going to be impossible to do. Right. Right. But I think Uh, it's a good thought exercise. It it definitely is, right? Simplicity is a good thing. Um, But yeah, whether you're uh, trying to summarize it to your five-year-old or to your general blog audience or something, you have to have some some process of review and articulation to see if you've really comprehended what you're, what you're wrestling with. Right. And the more you do that, the better. I mean, it's like, it's like anything else, right? It's like, when do you really, Jake, I'm sure you'll, you'll agree with this. Like, when did you really felt that you started to really have like serious command of fitness skills? It was probably when you started trying to teach other people, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it makes yeah, you critically yeah. reflective again, right. Mm-hmm. In a way that, in a way that you, you often aren't when, when you're not trying to teach something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I think that art and business are kind of similar because it's all about you can have something that's beautiful to you and maybe that's what matters maybe that's not it depends on what your scorecard is to use another buffett term but in business and in art 
a lot of it just depends on how it's communicated to other people. How do other people resonate with it? So if you're writing a book, you might think it's the most amazing book ever. And it's your, it's your, your perfection. It's your, your masterpiece. But if people are like, I don't really get it. I don't understand it. Then you obviously have some work to do. And that is both inspiring and disheartening sometimes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, um, read. (laughs) <laughs> that's the that's the that's the advice read read i mean there's i mean this is funny there's a book by uh, uh stephen king he's he's not actually i don't i don't enjoy all of his writing that much but he's obviously been very successful so i try to read books from people who've who've been very successful but my favorite book of him is actually called on on writing and it's oh, yeah, I love auto but yeah but i mean it, it can be summarized uh by his one piece of advice in there which is read a lot write a lot yep that's yep. that, that and like i'm like what a what a brilliant line right mm-hmm. read a lot write a lot Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're, we're getting close on time here. One more thing I wanted to address uh, in your book, you had a line, you said that discipline is empowered by passion and passion is one of those trigger words that gets bounced around so often in today's space. Some people will argue it's overused. Some people will just tell you, yes, just flat out chase your passion. So how do you think about passion in terms of success? Is it something that gets built up through practice? Is it something that should be kind of a life that you chase after? What is your view on that? Yeah, I, I think it's a little column A, a little column B, right? So you're gonna you're not gonna pursue something unless unless you judge it to be worthwhile to pursue, right? Unless you judge it to be good. Um, and it's it's obvious, right, that you're gonna be more willing to to put in the effort um, to pursue something to the extent that you see that it's good, or to avoid it to the extent that you see that it's really evil, right? So uh, going back to going back to fitness, right? A lot of the sort of discipline I initially developed started off by just seeing how evil it was the state that I was in, right? Like how much um, I didn't want to be there, right? So it was sort of pain motivated more than passion motivated. But then there was a switch, right? At some point, right? At some point, I, I began to see so many of the positive elements, right? The goodness of fitness, like I started really to feel better. Um, I started to really perform better, look better, all these things that my motivation sort of switched from a, an avoidance of pain to a pursuit of the good, right? If that makes sense. Um, so I actually don't think uh, that it's necessarily a bad thing starting out that your motivation comes from a negative place. I don't think you want to stay there, right? Um, but for me, certainly, and it sounds like maybe this might be similar to you, Jake, a lot of my uh, initial pursuits, especially in fitness, the pa- the passion, if you will, was just to get away from where I was, right? Mm-hmm. That, was, that was goal number one. I don't know exactly where I'm going, but I don't want to be here, Yeah. right? Um, and that was powerful. That was a powerful passion. And you need, I think you do need passions to kind of like uh, enact, enact certain disciplines. I mean, Plato talks about this, right? He talks about like the, the three characteristics of the soul where you have, we have kind of reason and we have spirit and we have appetite. And there isn't a great translation for the way that he uses spirit, but it'd be something like passion, like a righteous anger or a righteous indignation that we can kind of like whoop ourselves up with that once we've reasoned our way to, to something that is good, right? We see that something is really and truly good but our appetites are kind of pulling us in different directions, right? They're, they're constantly trying to thwart us as we know, right? Um, now reason is meant to guide our appetites towards a true good. Plato said, that's where kind of like spirit comes in, right? This gives us the sort of the oomph or the impetus mm-hmm. right? For, to like the juice that we need to, to, to follow right reason and not our appetites. Right. And so I think passion might be something of a, of a word we could slide in there to get uh, a similar meaning out of what Plato meant by that, right? And 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 that can come about from a, a focusing on something that, of course, that that you see the real good in, or it can come from uh, again critically reflecting on the on the on the bad situation uh, that you find yourself in, 
I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I think so. It, mm-hmm. uh, it makes me think of the resistance as Stephen Pressfield calls it. One of my favorite books is the war of art. The war of art. That's a great one. Have you read, have you read turning pro by him? Yeah. Yeah. Another That's great one. one. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what, what I remember from that book among other things is he says that the more resistance you feel, the more it is your duty to fulfill a thing. So if it's to start a business or write a book or, you know, paint a picture, whatever it is, he says that if you feel more resistance to it, I think kind of how you use that word spirit there, your spirit is calling for you to do it. And there's almost this like darkness that's telling you not to. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the delicate dance between those things. And that maybe is part of just the, the goal of self-actualization in life is doing things that are tough. And, and reading is also one of those things for me. Like, I don't always want to sit down and read, but it's one of those things that once I do it, it's so similar to exercise. Right. I don't always want to get in an exercise, but I feel great afterwards. And so try to remember to focus on the long-term game and everything. Yeah. Is- yeah. And one more thing about one of my favorite quotes from that Pressfield book, and I think this is absolutely true, is is he will say, the amount of resistance you face will increase in direct proportion to the importance of the goal and how close you are to finishing. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's so definitely like, true. Like the, right. the author that throws away the novel when he's 99% done. Right, right. And he's like, yeah, if like your goal is just to like pick up one small piece of trash and put it, you know, in the reset in the in the bin, you're probably not going to find a lot of resistance, mm-hmm. right? But if your goal is to cure cancer, yeah, mm-hmm. expect a lot of resistance. Right? Yeah, and it's like how Seth Godin says, you just have to ship. You have to set that date and ship, whether because it's never going to be perfect. And so mm-hmm. I think that's true with any self-improvement endeavor or artistic endeavor, business, whatever it may be. Yeah, and you know, I love that you brought up War of Art. I think books like that are so important because because people oftentimes like they see the the public face, they see the finished mm-hmm. process, but they don't see the struggles that people mm-hmm. go through on that. You know, another really good thing I'll recommend to people are. Um, the letters of John Steinbeck. Um, just grab those um, because you know he's somebody who's considered one of the greatest you know American novelists, and he well, he was right. He's got East of Eden and Grapes of Wrath and Mice of Men and Winter of Our Discontent and all that. But those letters are really great because it just shows you like how much resistance he faced, how unsure of himself that he was, how despondent he often became mm-hmm. in these processes, and it's and like it's not to like encourage people to get into like a woe is me attitude but just Mm -hmm. to have a realistic picture of the struggles that people face in their pursuit of something that they see is really good and and i I, i've always actually found that encouraging to be honest Mm -hmm. sort of similar to meditations almost it sounds like yeah yeah meditations is a little different you talk about aureliuses Mm -hmm. yeah i mean steinbeck's is his his collection of of letters isn't um just a a snippets of 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 stoicism but he's Mm -hmm just to give you an idea, he's, he's, he's writing letters to his, his family members, to his sons about like romantic advice. And he's writing response letters uh, to his agents when they give him rejections on mm-hmm. his books. And so, so like you can like peer into that. Um, but in, in a similar way to uh, uh, Aurelius um, is that it's, it's, it, you, get a, you get a closer look at the person rather than the product. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that is something that often goes way overlooked and can be very encouraging for people in life right Mm -hmm. everybody faces those those trials and tribulations and it's all about just overcoming it day after day and it gets easier i think the more you do it kind of like how pressfield says basically if you slay the dragon once it gets easier the next day and the next day and the next day but it's always there right yeah but it but it is interesting right is that it's it's always there um and and i think pressfield is, is spot on um and you you build the habit to get it done but just a quick thing about Steinbeck, you know, what his, the last novel he published, Our Winter of Our Discontent, 
um, it, it got kind of panned mm-hmm. and um, it kind of killed him, right? Like he went into like a deep depression over this and he never wrote another novel again after that. However, he did write Travels with Charlie and, and, and stuff like this. Uh, so he did, he did keep writing and, and, and there were, of course, happier notes after that. Um, so I, I think he would have benefited from reading uh, Pressfield's book, honestly, Steinbeck would have. But I mean, it's just like the real story, the behind the scenes story of people is, is not often what you see on Instagram is the Absolutely. point that is the point I'm trying to make about that. And, and there's a, there's a, there's a line there, right? There's a balance. It's like, you understand that, that life is resistance, right? It is. We're constantly working against resistance and to be strong is to some, whatever else strength means. It means you have an ability to work against resistance. Right. Um, and a book like the war of art is so good because it helps you to have the right expectations. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a cliche, right? The cliche is that all disappointment arises from improperly set expectations. Right. <laughs> and it's a lot of truth to that. So as long as you have the right expectations, right, it's going to be, and you expect that this is going to be hard, right. And it will get harder as I go along and it will get harder as I try and do bigger and more important things. And it will get harder the closer I am to actually finishing those big important things. It doesn't mean that it still won't be really hard, but it can help you from throwing your hands up, entering into a despondency and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Pat, thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, do you have any parting words to the audience besides read, read, read? <laughs> no, man, this has been beautiful. I appreciate you having me on, Jake, and I hope that uh, your audience enjoys this conversation and that we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. If you would, please take a minute out of your day to review and rate the podcast as well as subscribe. It would really help me out a lot. And if you're on Instagram, go ahead and follow me on there at jakeparker.fit and screenshot and tag me when you're listening to the show. I'll be sure to share it. And thank you personally on there.